This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Principles, Life and Work by Ray Dalio in 2017. I'm your host, Grante, and for more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Part 2, Life Principles. Number 1, Embrace Reality and Deal With It. There is nothing more important than understanding how reality works and how to deal with it. The state of mind you bring to this process makes all the difference. I have found it helpful to think of my life as if it were a game, in which each problem I face is a puzzle I need to solve. By solving the puzzle, I get a gem in the form of a principle that helps me avoid the same sort of problem in the future. Collecting these gems continually improves my decision-making, so I am able to ascend to higher and higher levels of play in which the game gets harder and the stakes become ever greater. All sorts of emotions come to me when I am playing, and those emotions can either help me or hurt me. If I can reconcile my emotions with my logic and only act when they are aligned, I make better decisions. Learning how reality works, visualizing the things I want to create, and then building them out is incredibly exciting to me. Stretching for big goals puts me in the position of failing and needing to learn and come up with new inventions in order to move forward. I find it exhilarating just being caught up in the feedback loop of rapid learning, just as a surfer loves riding a wave, even though it sometimes leads to crashes. Don't get me wrong, I'm still scared of the crashes and I still find them painful. But I keep that pain in perspective knowing that I will get through these setbacks and that most of my learning will come from reflecting upon them. Just as long-distance runners push through pain to experience the pleasure of runner's high, I have largely gotten past the pain of my mistake-making and instead enjoy the pleasure that comes with learning from it. I believe that with practice you can change your habits and experience the same mistake learner's high. 1.1. Be a hyper-realist. Understanding, accepting, and working with reality is both practical and beautiful. I have become so much of a hyper-realist that I've learned to appreciate the beauty of all realities, even harsh ones, and have come to despise impractical idealism. Don't get me wrong, I believe in making dreams happen. To me, there's nothing more better. There's nothing better in life than doing that. The pursuit of dreams is what gives life its flavor. My point is that people who create great things aren't idle dreamers. They are totally grounded in reality. Being hyper-realistic will help you choose your dreams wisely and then achieve them. I have found the following to be almost always true. A. Dreams plus reality plus determination okay, equals a successful life. People who achieve success and drive progress deeply understand the cause-effect relationships that govern reality and have principles for using them to get what they want. The converse is also true. Idealists who are not well-grounded in reality create problems, not progress. What does a successful life look like? We all have our own deep-seated needs, so we each have to decide for ourselves what success is. I don't care whether you want to be a master of the universe, a couch potato, or anything else. I really don't. Some people want to change, and others want to simply operate in harmony with it and savor life. Neither is better. Each of us needs to decide what we value most and choose the paths we take to achieve it. Take a moment to reflect on where you are on the following scale, which illustrates an overly simplified choice you should think about. Where would you put yourself on it? We see a line on the far left, uh, arrows on each end. On the far left, left it says, save your life. On the far right, make an impact. Where are you on that line? The question just isn't just how much of each to go after, but how hard to work to get as much as possible. I wanted crazy amounts of each, was thrilled to work hard to get as much of them as possible, and found that they could largely be one and the same and mutually reinforcing. Over time, I learned that getting more out of life wasn't just a matter of working harder at it. It was much more a matter of working effectively, because working effectively could increase my capacity by hundreds of times. I don't care what you want or how hard you want to work for it, because that's for you to decide. I'm just trying to pass along to you what has helped me get the most out of each hour of time and each unit of effort. Most importantly, I've learned that there is no escaping the fact that 1.2 truth, or more precisely, an accurate understanding of reality, 
is the essential foundation for any good outcome. Wow, good. Most people fight seeing what's true when it's not what they want it to be. That's bad because it is more important to understand and deal with the bad stuff since the good stuff will take care of itself. Do you agree with this? If not, you are unlikely to benefit from what follows. But if you do agree, let's build upon it. 1.3. Be radically open-minded and radically transparent. None of us is born knowing what is true. We either have to discover what's true for ourselves or believe and follow others. The key is to know which path will yield better results. I believe that A. Radical open-mindedness and radical transparency are invaluable for rapid learning and effective change. Learning is the product of a continuous real-time feedback loop in which we make decisions, see their outcomes, and improve our understanding of reality as a result. Being radically open-minded enhances the efficiency of those feedback loops because it makes what you are doing and why so clear to yourself and others that there can't be any misunderstandings. The more open-minded you are, the less likely you are to deceive yourself, and the more likely it is that others will give you honest feedback. If they are believable people, and it's very important to know who is believable, you will learn a lot from them. Being radically transparent and radically open-minded accelerates this learning process. It can also be difficult because being radically transparent rather than more guarded exposes one to criticism. It's natural to fear that, yet if you don't put yourself out there with your radical transparency, you won't learn. B. Don't let fears of what others think of you stand in your way. You must be willing to do things in the unique ways you think are best and to open-mindedly reflect on the feedback that comes inevitably as a result of being that way. Learning to be radically transparent is like learning to speak in public. While it's initially awkward, the more you do it, the more comfortable you will be with it. And this has been true for me. For example, I still instinctively find being as radically transparent in the ways that I am in this book uncomfortable because I am exposing personal material to the public that will attract attention and criticism. Yet, I am doing it because I've learned that it's best, and I wouldn't feel good about myself if I let my fears stand in the way. In other words, I have experienced the positive effects of radical transparency for so long that it's now uncomfortable for me not to be that way. Hmm. Besides giving me the freedom to be me, it has also allowed me to understand others and for them to understand me, which is much more efficient and much more enjoyable than not having this understanding. Imagine how many fewer misunderstandings we would have and how much more efficient the world would be and how much closer we would all be to knowing what's true instead of hiding what they think people shared it openly. I'm not talking about everyone's very personal inner secrets. I'm talking about people's opinions of each other and of how the world works. As you'll see, I've learned firsthand how powerful this kind of radical truth and transparency is in improving my decision making and my relationships. So whenever I'm faced with the choice, my instinct is to be transparent. I practice it as a discipline and I recommend you do the same. C. Embracing radical truth and radical transparency will bring more meaningful work and more meaningful relationships. My experience, based on watching thousands of people try this approach, is that with practice the vast majority find it so rewarding and pleasurable that they have a hard time operating any other way. This takes practice in changing one's habits. I have found that it typically takes about 18 months, which is how long it takes to change most habits. 1.4. Look to nature to learn how reality works. All the laws of reality were given to us by nature. Man didn't create these laws, but by understanding them, we can use them to foster our own evolution and achieve our goals. For example, our ability to fly or send cell phone signals around the world came from the understanding and applying the existing rules of reality, the physical laws or principles that govern the natural world. While I spent most of my time studying the realities that affect me most directly, those that drive economies, the markets, and the people I deal with, I also spend time in nature and can't help reflecting on how it works by observing, reading, and speaking with some of the greatest specialists on the subject. I found it both interesting and valuable to observe which laws we humans have in common with the rest of nature 
and which differentiate us. Doing that has had a big impact on my approach to life. First of all, I see how cool it is that the brain's evolution gave us the ability to reflect on how reality works in this way. Man's most distinctive quality is our singular ability to look down on reality from a higher perspective and synthesize an understanding of it. While other species operate by following their instincts, man alone can go above himself and look at himself within his circumstances and within time, including before and after his existence. For example, we can ponder the ways that nature's flying machines, swimming machines, and billions of other machines, from the microscopic to the cosmic, interact with one another to make up a working whole that evolved through time. This is because the evolution of the brain gave man a much more developed neocortex, which gives us the power to think abstractly and logically. While our higher level thinking makes us unique among species, it can also make us uniquely confused. Other species have much simpler and more straightforward lives without any of man's wrestling with what's good and what's bad. <clears throat> In contrast with animals, most people struggle to reconcile their emotions and their instincts, which come from the animal parts of their brains, with their reasoning, which comes from the parts of the brain more developed in humans. This struggle causes people to confuse what they want to be true with what actually is true. Let's look at this dilemma to try to understand how reality works. When trying to understand anything, economies, markets, the weather, whatever, one can approach the subject with two perspectives. One, top down, by, try by trying to find the one code or law that drives them all. For example, in the case of markets, one could study universal laws like supply and demand that affect all economies and markets. In the case of species, one could focus on learning how the genetic code, or DNA, works for all species. Perspective 2. Bottom up. By studying each specific case and the codes and laws that are true for them, for example, the codes or laws particular to the market for wheat, or the DNA sequences that make the ducks different from any other species. Seeing things from the top down is the best way to understand ourselves and the laws of reality within the context of the overarching universal laws. That's not to say it's not worth having a bottom-up perspective. In fact, to understand the world accurately, you need both. By taking a bottom-up perspective that looks at each individual case, we can see how it lines up with our theories about the laws that we expect to govern it. When they line up, we're good. By looking at nature from the top down, we can see that much of what we call human nature is actually animal nature. That's because the human brain is programmed with millions of years of genetic learning that we share with other species. Because we share common roots and common laws, we and other animals have similar attributes and constraints. For example, the male-female sexual reproduction process using two eyes to provide depth perception and many other systems are shared by many species in the animal kingdom. Similarly, our brains have some animal parts that are much older in evolutionary terms than humanity is. These laws that we have in common are the most overarching ones. They wouldn't be apparent to us if we just looked at ourselves. If you looked at just one species, like ducks for example, to try to understand the universal laws, you would fail. Similarly, if you just looked to mankind to understand the universal laws, you would fail. Man is just one of 10 million species and one of just the billions of manifestations of the forces that bring together and take apart atoms through time. Yet most people are like ants, focused only on themselves and their own ant hill. They believe the universe revolves around people and don't pay attention to the universal laws that are true for all species. To try to figure out the universal laws of reality and principles for dealing with it, I found it helpful to try to look at things from nature's perspective. While mankind is very intelligent in relation to other species, we have the intelligence of moss growing on a rock compared to nature as a whole. We are incapable of designing and building a mosquito. Questionable? Let alone all the species and most of the other things in the universe. So I start from the premise that nature is smarter than I and try to let nature teach me how reality works. A. Don't get hung up on your views of how things should be, because you will miss out on learning how they really are. 
It's important not to let our biases stand in the way of our objectivity. To get good results, we need to be analytical rather than emotional. Whenever I observe something in nature that I, or mankind, think is wrong, I assume that I'm wrong and try to figure out why what nature is doing makes sense. That has taught me a lot. It has changed my thinking about, one, what's good and what's bad, and two, my purpose in life, and three, what I should do when faced with the most important choices. To help explain why, I will give you an example. When I went to Africa a number of years ago, I saw a pack of hyenas take down a young wildebeest. My reaction was visceral. I felt empathy for the wildebeest and thought that what I had just witnessed was horrible. But was that, but was that because it was horrible? Or was it because I am biased to believe, to believe it's horrible, what is actually wonderful? That got me thinking, would the world be a better or worse place if what I'd seen hadn't occurred? And that perspective drove me to consider the second and third order consequences so that I could see that the world would be worse. I now realize that nature optimizes for the whole, not for the individual. But most people judge good and bad based only on how it affects them. What I had seen was the process of nature at work, which is much more effective at furthering the improvement of the whole than any process man has ever invented. Most people call something bad if it is bad for them or bad for those they empathize with, ignoring the greater good. This tendency extends to groups. One religion will consider its beliefs good and another religion's beliefs bad, to such an extent that their members might kill each other in the mutual conviction that each is doing what is right. Typically, people's conflicting beliefs or conflicting interests make them unable to see things through another's eyes. <clears throat> That is not good, and it doesn't make sense. While I could understand people liking something that helps them and disliking things that hurt them, it doesn't make sense to call something good or bad in an absolute sense, based only on how it affects individuals. To do so would presume that what the individual wants is more important than the good of the whole. To me, nature seems to define good as what's good for the whole and optimizes for it, which is preferable. So, I have come to believe that as a general rule, and this is B, to be good, something must operate consistently within the laws of reality and contribute to the evolution of the whole. That is what is most rewarded. For example, if you come up with something the world values, you almost can't help but be rewarded. Conversely, reality tends to penalize those people, species, and things that don't work well and detract from evolution. I'm looking at what is true for everything. And in doing so, I have also come to believe that C, evolution is the single greatest force in the universe. It is the only thing that is permanent, and it drives everything. Everything from the smallest subatomic particle to the entire galaxy is evolving. While everything apparently dies or disappears in time, the truth is that it all just gets reconfigured in evolving forms. Remember that energy can't be destroyed it can only be reconfigured. So, the same stuff is continuously falling apart and coalescing in different forms. The force behind that is evolution. For example, the primary purpose of every living thing is to act as a vessel for the DNA that evolves life through time. The DNA that exists within each individual came from an eternity ago and will continue to live long after its individual carriers pass away in increasingly evolved forms. As I thought about evolution, I realized that it exists in other forms than life and is carried out through other transmission mechanisms than DNA. Technologies, languages, and everything else evolves. Knowledge, for example, is like DNA in that it is passed from generation to generation and evolves. Its impact on people over many generations can be as great or greater than that of the genetic code. Evolution is good because it is the process of adaptation that generally moves things toward improvement. All things such as products, organizations, and human capabilities evolve through time in a similar way. It is simply the process by which things either adapt and improve or die. To me, this evolutionary process looks like what you see on the right, and we see a looped line spiraling upwards. Evolution exists of adaptations, inventions that, sp 
provide spurts of benefits that decline in value. That painful decline leads either to new adaptations and new inventions that bring new products, organizations, and human capabilities to new and higher levels of development, or they decline in death, which looks like the diagram on the bottom left, which is, as you might imagine, a spiral down. Think of any product organization or person you know, and you will see that this is true. The world is littered with once great things that deteriorated and failed. Only a rare few have kept reinventing themselves to go on to new heights of greatness. All machines eventually break down, decompose, and have their parts recycled to create new machines. That includes us. Sometimes this makes us sad because we become attached to our machines. But if you look at it from the higher level, it's really beautiful to observe how the machine of evolution works. From this perspective, we can see that perfection does not exist. It is a goal that fuels a never-ending process of adaptation. If nature or anything were perfect, it would not be evolving. Organisms, organizations, and individual people are always highly imperfect but capable of improving. So rather than getting stuck hiding our mistakes and pretending we're perfect, it makes sense to find our imperfections and deal with them. You will either learn valuable lessons from your mistakes and press on, better equipped to succeed, or you won't and you will fail. As the saying goes, <clears throat> D, evolve or die. This evolutionary cycle is not just for people but for countries, companies, and economies, for everything, and it is naturally self-correcting as a whole, though not necessarily for its parts. For example, if there is too much supply and waste in a market, Prices will go down, companies will go out of business, and capacity will be reduced until the supply falls in line with the demand, at which time the cycle will start to move in the opposite direction. Similarly, if an economy turns bad enough, those responsible for running it will make the political and policy changes that are needed, or they will not survive, making room for their replacements to come along. These cycles are continuous and play out in logical ways and they tend to be self-reinforcing. The key is to fail, learn, and improve quickly. If you're consistently learning and improving, your evolutionary process will look like the one that's ascending. Do it poorly, and it will look like the one which goes down. 1.5. Evolving is life's greatest accomplishment and its greatest reward. It is, it is instinctually that way, which is why most of us feel the pull of it. In other words, we instinctively want to get better at things and have created and evolved technology to help us. History has shown that all species will either go extinct or evolve into other species, though with our limited time window that is hard for us to see. But we do know that we, but what we call mankind was simply the result of DNA evolving into a new form about 200,000 years ago. And we know that mankind will certainly either go extinct or evolve into a higher state. I personally believe that there is a good chance man will begin to evolve at an accelerating pace with the help of man-made technologies that can analyze vast amounts of data and think faster and better than we. I wonder how many centuries it will take us to evolve into a higher level species that will be much closer to omniscience than we are now if we don't destroy ourselves first. One of the great marvels of nature is how the whole system, which is full of individual organisms acting in their own self-interest and without understanding or guiding what's going on, can create a beautifully operating and evolving whole. While I'm not an expert at this, it seems that it's because evolution has produced A, incentives and interactions that lead to individuals pursuing their own interests and resulting in the advancement of the whole, it has also produced B, the natural selection process, and C, rapid experimentation and adaption. A, the individual's incentives must be aligned with the group goals. To give you a quick example of nature creating incentives that lead to individuals pursuing their own interests that result in the advancement of the whole, look at sex and natural selection. Nature gave us one hell of an incentive to have sex in the form of the great pleasure it provides, even though the purpose of having sex is to contribute the advancement of the DNA. That way, we individually get what we want while contributing to the evolution of the whole. B. Reality is optimizing for the whole, not for you. 
Contribute to the whole and you will be likely rewarded. Natural selection leads to better qualities being retained and passed along, e.g. in better genes, better abilities to nurture others, better products, etc. The product is a, the result is a constant cycle of improvement for the whole. C. Adaptation through rapid trial and error is invaluable. Natural selection's trial and error process allows improvement without anyone understanding or guiding it. The same can apply to how we learn. There are at least three kinds of learning that foster evolution. Memory-based learning, or storing the information that comes in through one's conscious mind so that we can recall it later. Then there's subconscious learning, the knowledge that we take away from our experiences that never enters our conscious minds, though it does affect our decision-making. And learning that occurs without thinking at all, such as the changes in DNA that encode a species adaptations. I used to think that memory-based conscious learning was the most powerful, but I've since come to understand that it produces less rapid progress than experimentation and adaptation. To give you an example of how nature improves without thinking, just look at the struggle that mankind, with all its thinking, has experienced in trying to outsmart viruses, which don't even have brains. Viruses are like brilliant chess opponents. By evolving quickly, combining different genetic material across different strains, they keep the smartest minds in the global health community busy, thinking up counter moves to hold them off. Understanding that this is especially helpful in an era when computers can run large numbers of simulations replicating the evolutionary process to help us see what works and what doesn't. In the next chapter, I will describe to you a process that has helped me and that I believe can help you evolve quickly. But first, I want to emphasize how important your perspective is in trying to decide what is important to you and what to go after. D. Realize that you are simultaneously everything and nothing, and decide what you want to be. It is a great paradox that individually we are simultaneously everything and nothing. Through our own eyes, we are everything, e.g. when we die, the whole world disappears. So to most people, and to most other species, dying is the worst thing possible, and is of paramount importance that we have the very best life possible. However, when we look down on ourselves through the eyes of nature, we are of absolutely no significance. It is a reality that each one of us is only one of about 7 billion of our species alive today, and that our species is only one of about 10 million in our pla- on our planet. Earth is just one of about 100 billion planets in our galaxy, which is just one of about 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. Our lifetimes are only about 1 3,000th of humanity's existence, which itself is only about one twenty-thousandth of Earth's existence. In other words, we are unbelievably tiny and short-lived, and no matter what we accomplish, our impact will be insignificant. At the same time, we instinctually want to matter, and evolve, and can matter a tiny bit, and it's all those tiny bits that add up to drive the evolution of the universe. The question is how we matter and evolve. Do we matter to others who also don't matter in the grand scope of things, or in some greater sense that we will never actually achieve? Or does it not matter if we matter so we should forget about the question and just enjoy our lives while they last? E. What you will be depends on the perspective you have. Where you go in life will depend on how you see things and who and what you feel connected to, like your family, community, or country. Mankind, the whole ecosystem, everything. You will have to decide to what extent you will put the interests of others above your own and which others you will choose to do so for. That's because you will regularly encounter situations that will force you to make such choices. While other decisions might seem too erudite for your taste, you will make them either consciously or subliminally, and they will be very important. For me personally, I now find it thrilling to embrace reality, to look down on myself from nature's perspective, and to be an infinitesimally small part of the whole. My instinctual and intellectual goal is simply to evolve and contribute to evolution in some tiny way while I am here and while I am what I am. At the same time, the things I love most, my work and my relationships, are what motivate me. So. I find how reality and nature work, including how I and everything will decompose and recompose, beautiful, 
Though emotionally, I find the separation from those I care about difficult to appreciate. 1.6. Understand nature's practical lessons. I have found understanding how nature and evolution work helpful in a number of ways. Most importantly, it has helped me deal with my realities more effectively and to make difficult choices. When I began to look at reality through the perspective of figuring out how it really works, instead of thinking things should be different, I realized that most everything that at first seemed bad to me, like rainy days, weaknesses, and even death, was because I held preconceived notions of what I personally wanted. With time, I learned that my initial reaction was because I hadn't put whatever I was reacting to in the context of the fact that reality is built to optimize for the whole rather than for just me. A. Maximize your evolution. Earlier, I mentioned that the unique abilities of thinking logically, abstractly, and from a higher level are carried out in structures located in the neocortex. These parts of the brain are more developed in humans and allow us to reflect on ourselves and direct our own evolution. Because we are capable of conscious, memory-based learning, we can evolve further and faster than any other species, changing not just across generations, but within our own lifetimes. This constant drive toward learning and improvement makes getting better innately enjoyable and getting better fast exhilarating. Though most people think that they are striving to get the things, toys, bigger houses, money, or status, that will make them happy, for most people those things don't supply anywhere near the long-term satisfaction that getting better at something does. Once we get the things we are striving for, we rarely remain satisfied with them. The things are just the bait. Chasing after them forces us to evolve, and it is the evolution and not the rewards themselves that matter to us and those around us. This means that for most people, success is struggling and evolving as effectively as possible i.e. learning rapidly about oneself and one's environment, and then changing to improve. It is natural that this should be the way, because of the law of diminishing returns. Consider what acquiring money is like. People who earn so much that they derive little or no marginal gains from it will experience negative consequences, as with any other form of excess, like gluttony. If they are intellectually healthy, they will begin seeking something new or seeking new depths in something old, and they will get stronger in the process. As Freud put it, love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. The work doesn't necessarily have to be a job, though I believe it's generally better if it is a job. It could be any kind of long-term challenge that leads to personal improvement. As you might have guessed, I believe that the need to have meaningful work is connected to man's innate desire to improve and relationships are the natural connections to others that make us relevant to each other and to society more broadly. B. Remember, no pain, no gain. Realizing that we innately want to evolve, that the other stuff we are going after, while nice, won't sustain our happiness, has helped me focus on my goals of evolving and contributing to evolution in my own infinitely small way. While we don't like pain, everything that nature made has a purpose, so nature gave us pain for a purpose. What is its purpose? Well, it alerts us and helps direct us. C. It is a fundamental law of nature that in order to gain strength, one has to push one's limits, which is painful. As Carl Jung put it, quote, man needs difficulties. They are necessary for health, end quote. Yet most people instinctively avoid pain. This is true whether we are talking about bo bodybuilding, e.g. weightlifting, or the mind, like frustration, mental struggle, embarrassment, and shame. And especially true when people confront the harsh reality of their own imperfections. 1.7. Pain plus reflection equals progress. There is no avoiding avoiding pain, especially if you're going after ambitious goals. Believe it or not, you are lucky to feel that kind of pain if you approach it correctly, because it is a signal that you need to find solutions to progress. If you can develop a reflexive reaction to psychic pain that causes you to reflect on it rather than avoid, it will lead to your, ramp, your rapid learning and evolving. After seeing how much more effective it is to face the painful realities that are caused by your problems, mistakes, and weaknesses, 
I believe you won't want to operate any other way. It's just a matter of getting in the habit of doing it. Most people have a tough time reflecting when they are in pain, and they pay attention to other things when the pain passes, so they miss out on the reflections that provide the lessons. If you can reflect well while you're in pain, which is probably a lot to ask, then great. But if you can remember to reflect after it passes, that is valuable too. I literally created a pain button app to help people do this, which I'll describe later in the book. The challenges you face will test and strengthen you. If you're not failing, you're not pushing your limits. And if you're not pushing your limits, you are not maximizing your potential. Though this process of pushing your limits, of sometimes failing and sometimes breaking through, and deriving benefits from both your failures and your successes, is not for everyone. If it is for you, it can be so thrilling that it becomes addictive. Life will inevitably bring you such moments, and it will be up to you to decide whether you want to go back for more. If you choose to push through this often painful process of personal evolution, you will naturally ascend to higher and higher levels. As you you climb above the blizzard of things that surround you, you will realize that they seem bigger than they really are when you are seeing them up close, that most things in life are just another one of those. The higher you ascend, the more effective you become at working with reality to shape outcomes toward your goals. Once What once seemed impossibly complex becomes simple. A. Go to the pain rather than avoid it. If you don't let up on yourself and instead become comfortable, always operating with some level of pain, you will evolve at a faster pace. That's just the way it is. Every time you confront something painful, you are at a key, you are at a potentially important juncture in your life. You have the opportunity to choose healthy and painful truth or unhealthy but comfortable delusion. The irony is that if you choose the healthy route, the pain will turn into pleasure. The pain is the signal. Like switching from not exercising to exercising, developing the habit of embracing the pain and learning from it too, learning from it will get you to the other side. And by getting to the other side, I mean that you will become hooked on. One, identifying, accepting, and learning how to deal with your weaknesses. Two, preferring that the people around you be honest with you rather than keep their negative thoughts about you to themselves. And three, being, uh, being yourself rather than having to pretend to be strong where you are weak. B, embrace tough love. In my own life, what I want to give to people most importantly to people I love is the power to deal with reality to get what they want. In pursuit of my goal to give them strength, I will often deny them what they want because that will give them the opportunity to struggle so that they can develop the strength to get what they want on their own. This can be difficult for people emotionally, even if they understand intellectually that having difficulties is the exercise that they need to grow strong and that just giving them what they want will weaken them and ultimately lead to needing more help. Of course, most people would prefer not to have weaknesses. Our upbringings and our experiences in the world have conditioned us to be embarrassed by weaknesses and to hide them. But people are happiest when they can be themselves. If you can be open with your weaknesses, it will make you freer and will help you deal with them better. I urge you not to be embarrassed about your problems, recognizing that everyone has them. Bringing them to the surface will help you break bad habits and develop good ones, and you will acquire real strength in justifiable optimism. This evolutionary process of productive adaptation and ascent, the process of seeking, obtaining, and pursuing more and more ambitious goals, does not just pertain to how individuals and society move forward. It is equally relevant when dealing with setbacks, which are inevitable. At some point in your life, you will crash in a big way. You might fail at your job or with your family, lose a loved one, suffer a serious accident or illness, or discover the life you imagined is out of reach for you forever. There are a whole host of ways that something will get you. At such times, you will be in pain and might think that you don't have the strength to go on. You almost always do. However, your ultimate success will depend on you realizing that fact, even though it might not seem that way at the moment. This is why people who have endured setbacks that seemed devastating at the time ended up as happy or even happier then 
they originally were after they successfully adapted to those setbacks. The quality of your life will depend on the choices you make at those painful moments. The faster one appropriately adapts, the better. No matter what you want out of life, your ability to adapt and move quickly and efficiently through the process of personal evolution will determine your success and happiness. If you do it well, you can change your own psychological reaction so to it so that what was painful can become something you crave. 1.8. Weigh Second and Third Order Consequences By recognizing the higher-level consequences nature optimizes for, I've come to see that people who overweigh the first-order consequences of their decisions and ignore the effects of second and subsequent-order consequences rarely reach their goals. This is because first-order consequences often have opposite desirabilities from second-order consequences, resulting in big mistakes in decision-making. For example, the first-order consequences of exercise are pain and time spent and are commonly considered undesirable, while the second-order consequences of better health and more attractive appearance are deemed desirable. Similarly, food that tastes good is often bad for you and vice versa. Quite often, the first-order consequences are the temptations that cost us what we really want, and sometimes they are the barriers that stand in our way. It's almost as though nature sorts us by throwing us trick choices that have both types of consequences and penalizing those who make their decisions on the basis of the first-order consequences alone. By contrast, people who choose what they really want and avoid the temptations and get over the pains that drive them away from what they really want are much more likely to have successful lives. 1.9. Own Your Outcomes For the most part, life gives you so many decisions to make and so many opportunities to recover from your mistakes that, if you handle them well, you can have a terrific life. Of course, sometimes there are major influences on the quality of our lives that come from things beyond our control, like the circumstances being born into, accidents, illnesses, and so forth. But for the most part, even the worst circumstances can be made better with the right approach. For example, a friend of mine dove into a swimming pool, hit his head, and became a quadriplegic. But he approached his situation well and became as happy as anybody else because there are many paths to happiness. My point is simply this. Whatever circumstances life brings you, you will be more likely to succeed and find happiness if you take responsibility for making your decisions well instead of complaining about things beyond your control. Psychologists call this having an internal locus of control, and studies consistently show that people who have it outperform those who don't. So don't worry about whether you like your situation or not. Life doesn't give a damn about what you like. It's up to you to connect what you want with what you need to do to get it and then find the courage to carry it through. In the next chapter, I will show you the five-step process that helped me learn about reality and evolve. 1.10. Look at the machine from the higher level. Our uniquely human ability to look down from a higher level doesn't apply just to understanding reality and the cause-effect relationships underlying it. It also applies to looking down on yourself and those around you. I call this ability to rise above your own and others' circumstances and objectively look down on them as higher-level thinking. Higher-level thinking gives you the ability to study and influence the cause-effect relationships at play in your life and use them to get the outcomes you want. A. Think of yourself as a machine operating within a, machi- within a machine and know that you have the ability to alter your machines to produce better outcomes. You have your goals. I call the way you will operate to achieve your goals your machine. It consists of a design, the things that have to get done, and the people who will do the things that need getting done. Those people include you and those who help you. For example, imagine that your goal is a military one, to take the hill from the enemy. Your design for your machine might include two scouts, two snipers, four infantrymen, and so on. While the right design is essential, it is only half the battle. It is equally important to put the right people in each of those positions. They need different qualities to do their jobs well. The scouts must be fast, the snipers must be accurate, so that the machine will produce the outcomes you seek.
B. By comparing your outcomes to your goals, you can determine how to modify your machine. This evaluation and improvement process exactly mirrors the evolutionary process I described earlier. It means looking at how to improve or change the design or people to achieve your goals. Schematically, the process is a feedback loop. C. Distinguish between you as the designer of your machine and you as a worker in the machine. One of the hardest things for people to do is to objectively look down on themselves within their circumstances, i.e. their machine, so that they can act as the machine's designer or manager. Most people remain stuck in the perspective of being a worker within the machine. If you can recognize the differences between being those roles and that it is much more important that you are a good designer or manager of your life than a good worker within it, you will be on the right path. To be successful, the designer-manager you has to be objective about what the worker you is really like, not believing in him more than he deserves or putting in him in jobs that he shouldn't be in. Instead of having the strategic perspective, most people operate emotionally and in the moment. Their lives are a series of undirected emotional experiences, going from one thing to the next. If you want to look back on your life and feel like you've achieved what you wanted, you cannot operate that way. D. The biggest mistake most people make is not to see themselves and others objectively, which leads them to bump into their own we others' weaknesses again and again. People who do this fail because they are stubbornly stuck in their own heads. If they could just get around this, they could live up to their potential. And this is why higher-level thinking is essential for success. E. Successful people are those who can go above themselves to see things objectively and manage those things to shape change. They can take in the perspectives of others instead of being trapped in their own heads with their own biases. They are able to look objectively at what they are like, their strengths and weaknesses, and what others are like to put the right people in the right roles to achieve their goals. Once you understand how to do this, you'll see that there's virtually nothing you can't accomplish. You will just have to learn how to face your realities and use the full range of resources at your disposal. For example, if you as the designer or manager discover that you as the worker can't do something well, you need to fire yourself as the worker and get a good replacement while staying in the role of designer manager of your own life. You shouldn't be upset if you find out that you're bad at something. You should be happy that you found out because knowing that and dealing with it will improve your chances of getting what you want. If you are disappointed because you can't be the best person to do everything yourself, you were terribly naive. Nobody can do everything well. Would you want to have Einstein on your basketball team? When he fails to dribble and shoot well, would you think badly of him? Should he feel humiliated? Imagine all the areas in which Einstein was incompetent, and imagine how hard he struggled to excel even in the areas in which he was the best. Watching people struggle and having others watch you struggle can elicit all kinds of ego-driven emotions such as sympathy, pity, embarrassment, anger, or defensiveness. You need to get over all that and stop, stop seeing struggling as something negative. Most of life's greatest opportunities come out of moments of struggle. It's up to you to make the most of these tests of creativity and character. When encountering your weaknesses, you have four choices. One, you can deny them, which is what most people do. Two, you can accept them and work at them in order to try to convert them into strengths, which might or might not work depending on your ability, ability to change. Three, you can accept your weaknesses and find ways around them. Or four, you can change what you are going after. Which solution you choose will be critically important to the direction of your life. The worst path you can take is the first. Denial can only lead to your constantly banging up against your weaknesses, having pain, and not getting anywhere. The second, accepting your weaknesses while trying to turn them into strengths, is probably the best path if it works. But some things you will never be good at, and it takes a lot, or it takes a lot of time and effort to change and not worth it. The best single clue as to whether you should go down this path is whether the thing you are trying to do is consistent with your nature, i.e., your natural abilities. The third path, accepting your weaknesses while trying to find ways around them, is the easiest and typically the most viable, yet it is the one least followed. The fourth path, changing what you are going after, is also a great path, though it requires flexibility on your part to get past your preconceptions and enjoy the good fit when you find it. 
F. Asking others who are strong in areas where you are weak to help you is a great skill that you should develop no matter what, as it will help you develop guardrails that will prevent you from doing what you shouldn't be doing. All successful people are good at this. G. Because it is difficult to see oneself objectively, you need to rely on the input of others and the whole body of evidence. I know that my own life has been full of mistakes and lots of great feedback. It was only by looking down on this body of evidence from a higher level that I was able to get around my mistakes and go after what I wanted. For as long as I have been practicing this, I still know I can't see myself objectively, which is why I continue to rely so much on the input of others. H. If you are open-minded enough and determined, you can get virtually anything you want. So I certainly don't want to dissuade you from going after whatever you want. At the same time, I urge you to reflect on whether what you are going after is consistent with your nature. Whatever your nature is, there are many paths that will suit you, so don't fixate on just one. Should a particular path close, all you have to do is find another good one consistent with what you like. You'll learn a lot about how to determine what you're like later in chapter Understand That People Are Wired Very Differently. But most people lack the courage to confront their own weaknesses and make the hard choice choices that this process requires. Ultimately, it comes down to these five decisions. 1. Don't confuse what you wish were true with what is really true. 2. Don't worry about looking good. Worry instead about achieving your goals. 3. Don't overweight first-order consequences relative to second- and third-order ones. 4. Don't let pain stand in the way of progress. And 5. Don't blame bad outcomes on anyone but yourself.